0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. Today you get a little taste of what it's like to be a Patreon member and enjoy a big fat bonus episode, because why the fuck not? Actually, because we're all quarantined and losing our fucking minds, but it's fine, we're fine, everything's fine. Earlier this week, I gave you the Joey LeBute case where I told you I'd run across countless other men who had died in very similar situations. So I did a little digging and I put a little something together for you. You're literally in forced hibernation and don't give a single fuck about my small talk. So let's dive in. A lot of people have talked about the smiley face killer theory, someone or someones thought to be out roaming the streets attacking young healthy men and throwing them into rivers, leaving a spray painted smiley face signature behind close to the scene. However, I want to steer clear from that exact pattern because I think there are some more realistic ones to take a look at. The spray-painted smiley faces that have been found don't all look the same, and frankly, if you handed me a can of spray paint and asked me to tag a bridge, you'd either get a dick or a smiley face, so the smiley face is a little too inclusive and also a little too exclusive for this research. Same subject matter to an extent, but a little more pattern and a little less doodling. This all being said, the websites for some of these smiley face potential victims were a huge resource for this episode, namely Footprints at the River's Edge and VanceHolmes.com. So if you're ever bored and curious or are a college-aged male looking for nightmares, give those a little clicky click. They are a great starting point. But let's get to our first case. Of all the victims I researched and compared, Ryan Getz was the first one I think really fits the total pattern here. He was 21, happy, and healthy, and was celebrating hard on New Year's Eve of 1997 in East Lansing, Michigan. After some drinking, he decided he was going to go visit his girlfriend at the Cedar Village Apartments. Unfortunately for him, she wasn't there. He left those Cedar Village Apartments, never to be seen again. His family reported him missing the next day when he didn't show up for a New Year's celebration and the search for him began. They searched high and low, only to find nothing, as if Ryan had just evaporated. That is until four and a half months later, when his body was found in the Red Cedar River just one single mile from where he was last seen. As we know from the Joy LeBute episode, river currents generally range from one mile an hour to seven miles per hour. If Ryan had been in the river for four and a half months, roughly 135 days, he should have theoretically gone 3,240 miles down the river. But he didn't. He went one. Just one mile. And not a single soul saw him for four and a half months. His death was ruled a drowning, but it's also mentioned that his autopsy showed indications that he might have been involved in a fight prior to his death. So I'm guessing abrasions to his knuckles or something, otherwise they would have been a lot more broad about his injuries. But the last people who saw him, who were some guys who let him use their phone at his girlfriend's apartment complex, mentioned nothing about him looking like he'd been in a fight, just that he was super drunk. But none of that was explored. Ryan was dead. Ryan had drowned. It didn't matter if he had sustained injuries from some unexplained fight with who knows what or how he managed to go almost nowhere in the four and a half months that he was in that river. That was it for him. But that was just the beginning for Eric Blair. On October 20th of 2001, four years later, Eric Blair was also out partying in East Lansing, Michigan, before he, too, decided to stop by the Cedar Village Apartments to go to another party. When he got there, the host decided that he was too drunk to stay and kicked him out. But his friends weren't huge pieces of shit and decided that if Brian had to leave, they would leave, too. Round of applause for loyalty here. They all started walking back, but somehow Brian got separated from the group between River Street and Waters Edge Street. Knowing what happens, these street names feel like they're haunting me. No one ever saw Brian alive again. It wasn't until three days later that he too, just like Ryan Getz, who was last seen at the exact same apartment complex, was found in the Red Cedar River. He was found literally 0.2 miles from where he was last seen, but Eric wasn't found floating. He was found 10 feet beneath the water's surface. Do you guys remember in gym when you had to run the mile and you had to run four laps around that busted ass track? 0.2 miles wouldn't even equate to one lap around those tracks. If you walked to where Eric got separated from his friends, open your eyes and did a full 360, theoretically, you'd have been able to see exactly where he was found. But somehow, all the searches for him came up empty. Even after a call to police about a man allegedly in the river the exact night Eric went missing. Nothing. Pause. Who the fuck calls police about someone in the damn river and doesn't wait for rescue to get there? Anyways. He was missing for 72 hours, and in Eric's case, we know that the river was flowing at a rate of 5 miles an hour that night. Eric theoretically could have traveled 360 miles down that river, but he didn't even make it a quarter of a mile. And just like Ryan, that was it for Eric. He was dead. He had drowned, and aside from his family and friends, no one cared about the river current. No one seemed to care how he managed to disappear in the blink of an eye. He was just gone, and that was the end of it. But the pattern was just beginning for Michigan. Just three years after Ryan Goetz went missing on New Year's Eve of 1997, Brian Welzine was celebrating Y2K out in Chicago. Shout out to everyone old enough to remember what the fuck Y2K was like. How will the computers know the date when now computers will wipe your ass for you? Anywho, Brian, yes, another Brian, was at this big ass Y2K party and somehow vanished. Tons of people were partying their asses off with him, but he just disappears. Brian's dad sent out on a mission to find his son, but it would take three and a half months to do so. On March 17th of 2000, Brian's body was found 30 miles away in Lake Michigan, and you might be like, well, that's farther than what we've been seeing in the last two cases, but y'all know I come with plot twists. Brian Welzine's body showed little to no signs of decomposition whatsoever. A body in the water will decompose faster than a dry body, but his looked as if he had died within the last few days and been placed in the lake. Now, for those of you temperature wizards out there, you might think, hey, Lake Michigan is fucking cold. Maybe it preserved his body. And yes, Lake Michigan is cold as balls, but it never froze between the time he went missing and the day he was found. Furthermore, when decomposition starts, it doesn't stop. If he had been dead for those entire three and a half months, there would have been a lot more damage to his outer and inner body. It suggested he had only been dead around three days due to how pristine his organs still were. Let's light a little fire under this plot twist ass, though. Brian had fixed liver mortis on the backside of his body, which means that after he died, he was on his back for at least 12 hours or so. The chances of that happening to a dead body in a lake are slim to none, and we're going to slide on over to the nun column because slim was just thrown in there to be nice. Your body is going to be slipping and sliding and tumbling and fumbling all up and down that river. Your liver mortis would be all over, not fixed on one side of your body. Ever tried to have a floating contest in a pool before? Shit's hard. Your legs will always sink. Fucking legs. Now imagine having that contest in a flowing river. Ain't gonna happen. What happened in those three months? Where was he? Who was he with? What did he eat? As of 20 years later, we still don't know. Oh geez. It's been 20 years since Y2K. Someone signed me up for AARP. It would take only two years for another mysterious drowning to happen in Chicago. On April 5th of 2002, Albert Pompendro was leaving a Greyhound bus station when he ran into some friends. He was well-dressed and upbeat and told them that he was on his way to meet up with some other friends. They talked for about 10 minutes, and then Albert was on his merry little way. But he never showed up to his friend's house. He never called. In fact, no one ever heard from Albert again. It wasn't until 18 days later that his friends and family would find out what had happened to him. And I use that term loosely. On April 23rd, much like Brian Welzine, he too was found in Lake Michigan, only four miles from that Greyhound bus station, In Chicago and while that seems oddly coincidental I'm gonna shake this up for you yet again Albert was not found south of that bus station he was found north of it somehow Albert's body defied all laws of physics and went upstream but only four miles in a whopping 18 fucking days because fuck logic his manner of death is listed as undetermined but I have determined it to be bullshit you could assume we're done with Lake Michigan, but alas, if I've learned anything from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, it's that assuming just makes an ass out of you and me. Less than a year after Albert went missing, so did Nathan Hurr. In January of 2003, yes, January again, Nathan Hurr was at this All-You-Can-Drink-For-10 dollars event, which sounds like a terrible idea, in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. But with every single soul who took part in this $10 drink-a-thon, not one seemed to notice that Nathan just disappeared. It would take two months before anyone would find his body lying on a concrete shoreline type thing. And you can probably guess where I'm going to go with this. In two whole months, his body managed to move only two miles south of the sports bar he was last seen drinking at. I mapped it out and he could have fallen or been dropped into the Sheboygan River, which leads right into Lake Michigan, all within walking distance of where he went missing and where he was found. Except there is a massive, massive marina filled with boats and it is high traffic. I'll post a map so you can see just how populated this marina is. I'm talking 200 boats at any given time big. But zero whole people saw him in the two full months we're supposed to believe that he was in that water. No boats passed his body, no one saw him floating, nothing until one day in March where his body just appeared, seemingly right back where it had vanished from. But let's continue because we can, and when we can, we do. Except when it comes to $10 all-you-can-drink bar crawls, don't do that. Not because you'll wind up drowning in a way that makes no fucking sense, because I think we can all agree at this point that drinking has nothing to do with whatever is going on here, but because you're going to be chugging Pabst Blue Ribbon and wind up going home with a guy who looks like Regis Philbin and Kid Rock had a baby. And that's not good for anyone. Except for Kid Philbin. One month after Nathan went missing, so did Glenn Leedy. Glenn was at an apartment party on North Lake Shore Drive in Chicago. Yes, another apartment party, but he left around 10 30 that night because he wasn't feeling good. He called a cab and was never seen again. Police got a call that night about somebody walking erratically on North Lake Shore Drive, but when they responded, no one was there. Seriously, what's up with all these people who call police and just walk away? Promise me if you call the police about someone in a fucking river or a lake or walking like they're about to fall out that you'll wait and watch them until law enforcement responds. Anyways, 18 full days later, Nathan was found completely frozen in Lake Michigan, just a mile and a half from that apartment complex. But oh no, he wasn't found south, you know, the way current moves. Just like Albert, he was found north of where he was last seen. Not only did his body move only 1.5 miles, it went against the current. Or you know it didn't, because I'm going to go with it didn't. I'll show you a map in this episode's highlight on my Instagram and you'll see that in order to get to the lake from North Lakeshore Drive, you'd have to walk across a four-lane highway, jump a median, walk across another four-lane highway, walk across some grass, walk across a trail, and then walk across a long concrete beachfront to hit the water. It would not happen on accident. Now, you'll remember that Glenn called a cab the night he vanished. Police have footage of that cab at the apartment complex, but somehow, defying all faith I have in investigative tactics, they have no idea whether or not he actually got into it. I suppose no one called the taxi company, no one figured out which car responded to the complex that night, and no one talked to the driver to see whether or not they took Glenn home. Glenn's cause of death was listed as drowning and hypothermia, and that was it for him. Because, again, fuck logic, fuck physics, fuck them both. Now, let's take a trip back in time to February of 1998 when Nathan Kapfer was having the time of his life DJing for a party. When the party was over, he headed to Brothers Bar to continue the night. The bartender thought he was too drunk to serve him, which pissed Nathan off, and he wound up being thrown out. After being kicked out, he was arrested for disorderly conduct, which kind of feels like a trap or whatever. After his arrest, he was released around 2 a.m., and you'd think that being arrested might keep you away from the things that go bump in the night, but that's not the case for Nathan. Nathan was never seen again after his arrest. The search for him began, and a few days into it, his arrest papers were found neatly placed by a statue at Riverside Park. In a few days, the wind hadn't blown them away or even out of their neatly stacked pile, if we even want to believe that they'd been there the entire time. 42 days later, 42, I repeat, 42, Nathan's body was found by some fishermen in the Mississippi River backwater only a few blocks from the bar he was kicked out of. When he was arrested that night, his BAC was 0.07, low enough to legally drive. When he was found, it was 0.22. Some argue that he must have drank somewhere after being arrested, but we know that BAC increases through decomposition. But if he did drink before dying, where did he go and where are the witnesses? If he didn't, where in the hell was his body for those 42 days and why didn't anyone see him? And, and, who put the arrest papers at Riverside Park? Zero people know. Well, I'd be willing to bet that at least one person does, but we don't know who that person is yet. Less than a year later, Jeff Geese was drinking at Club Millennial just a half a block away from Brothers Bar when he too seemed to vanish into thin air. It's said that they did a canine search for him at some point after he went missing that led to dogs picking up on the scent of his blood in more than one location, but as far as I can find, absolutely no forensic follow-up was done. He was found a month and a half later in the Mississippi River. Now, his body did manage to make it all the way to Shelby, Minnesota. However, his death was determined to be a probable drowning. How in the fuck do you probably drown? There's either water in your lungs or there's not. The coroner also suggested that it might have been a suicide based on old shallow scarring on his wrists, which psychologists at the time told his parents were not from a genuine suicide attempt, but rather a cry for attention. And that's a really risky assumption to make, because as soon as the wackadoos in the world get word that you can kill people with a history of suicide and no one will question it, we won't have problems. Jess's family insists that there's more to his death than authorities are willing to admit, and still haven't. You might think we're done with Brothers Bar, but again, you would be wrong. Fast forward to 2005, it was a dark and stormy night. No, it wasn't. It was a brisk night in June, the only June drowning I've seen that seems to link to the others, when Josh Snell was out drinking with his buddies at Brothers Bar in Eau Claire this time, a different location, when he decided he'd end the night with a nice lady friend. He called her at 2am to tell her he was coming over, but he never did. Instead, he made a call to another friend in panic saying that someone was after him and that he was hiding in some brush. The closest brush to hide in would be along the banks of the Chippewa River, just one single block away. Josh's brother says the police brushed off the topic of the call, which is interesting considering the fact that that's the tip that led them to find the shirts he was wearing that night, both laying on the bank of the Chippewa River that he was found in three days later. According to his brother, police think he just got hot and decided to take a swim in the river that was surrounded by brush and trees at 2am after planning to go to a girl's house, not showing up, and then telling a friend he was hiding from someone. It was 70 degrees at 2am that night. I can't even begin to imagine the thought process of bypassing both of those elements of that night and skipping to, dude just wanted to take a swim. Let's be real, a girl is going to win over a swim in a river any night. But Josh wasn't the first to go missing from Eau Claire and wind up in the water under suspicious circumstances. Three years earlier, in September of 2002, Craig Burroughs went out drinking at Water Street Tavern in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but when he didn't show up for work the next day, he was reported missing. He was found two and a half weeks later in Half Moon Lake, less than a mile and a half from where he was last seen. Less than two months after that, another young man, Michael Knoll, would also go missing from a bar on Water Street in Eau Claire, only to be found nine months later, also in Half Moon Lake. Water Street, Water Street, Half Moon Lake, Half Moon Lake. While researching this episode, I was contacted by a girl named Liz, whose cousin James Ledka was walking down Water Street in Eau Claire after a night of drinking when he, too, vanished. That was in 2018, and he has yet to be found. But her mom, James' aunt, has quit her job and put all of her effort into searching for her nephew. Her main focus? Half Moon Lake. These drownings didn't just start and it doesn't look like they're stopping either. There are so many other young able-bodied men who went out drinking with friends or family only to be found days or months later within walking distance of where they were last seen. If I did an episode on all of them, we would be here until we were all quarantined for a different virus and toilet paper would just be an urban legend. But I wanted to show you just how intertwined and connected these drownings are, how much they have in common, how long it's been going on, and how much it doesn't make any sense. I can't tell you what's going on here. Is it a serial killer? Maybe. Is it a dude carrying a can of spray paint? Probably not. But something is amiss here. I ran this case by my dad, who's made a career out of law enforcement, and he mentioned something that hadn't crossed my mind. Who would all of these grown-ass men trust? law enforcement, so I did some more digging. In Eau Claire alone, I found arrest records for six different people for impersonating a police officer. I found three in La Crosse, and you can only imagine how many I found for Chicago. I checked back in with James's cousin about this theory, and she said that right after James went missing, her sister, who lives in the area, had a black charger with lights flashing pull up right on her ass, like too close for comfort ass, and something didn't feel right, so she didn't pull over. In most cases, this would get you arrested as fuck, but not in this case, in Her case, the driver of the black charger simply turned off their lights and sped away. By the way, if this ever happens to you, call 911 and let them know you're being pulled over, and they'll let you know if someone is in fact trying to pull you over. That way you don't get an eluding charge, and police know if there's some creep-ass bitch out there pretending to be a cop. Is there someone out there pretending to be a cop, roaming the nightlife for drunk and trusting men, offering them a ride only to murder them and leave them in the water to be found almost exactly where they went missing? Until the theory starts being taken seriously by someone, we may never know. For all maps and photos pertaining to this episode, head over to my Instagram at theheatherashley and be sure to stay tuned to the end of this episode for the blooper reel. If bonus episodes give your life a new meaning, check out our Patreon where for just five whole dollars a month, you get an exclusive bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. And of course, when you sign up, you get instant access to all previous episodes as well. Oh, and you don't have to listen to any ads either. You're welcome. I'll be bringing you guys a brand new case on Monday, but until then, we out. Nope. Your liver mortis would be all over, not fixed on one side of your body. Have you ever tried, and you can probably guess where I'm going to, and you can probably guess where I'm going to, fuck me, dick that sounded way more which leads again, into lake michigan not all within only did his body of where he was why can't i say this not I'll, only did his man. body move <sighs> on north lake shore drive in chicago yes another apartment potty apartment potty called a cab the night he vanished vanished what the fuck i made a word i knew, i made a new word now let's take a little trap we're not gonna take a trap excuse me my neighbor's dogs are losing their fucking mind because my neighbors don't like to bring their dogs inside ever. And their neighbors hate the other dog's neighbors and the dog neighbors fight with each other. And they're all really fucking annoying and none of them should have dogs. And I'm like, hey, maybe they'll stop getting dogs. But they don't stop getting dogs. They got another fucking dog. So now it's three dogs fighting with one dog and now there's four dogs that won't shut the fuck up ever. Ah, uh, they've calmed down. I don't even know where I left off, so I'm going to start here. Only a few blocks from the bar, he was just kicked out of now 42 days later cavern in eau claire was i hate this word two craig burroughs went out drinking up uh, jeff's family and says that there's that i said that so fast